if you can't instill hope in the people around you that the future is going to be better than it is today, that you failed as a leader. The Strive for More podcast will resonate with those that strive for more in any aspect of their lives. Follow along on one man's journey on the path to a meaningful life through long-form interviews with everyone from successful entrepreneurs, artists, physicians, leading scientists, social media influencers, and professional athletes. This episode of the Strive for More podcast is brought to you by the Strive Accelerator, which is a weekly mastermind group for entrepreneurs. So if you're not seeing the success you want, or you're searching for a community of like-minded business owners, then send an email to jared at striveaccelerator.ca to book a call and learn more. From this guest days growing up in southern Quebec to his adventures as a pilot at the ripe old age of 26, his curiosity and resourcefulness have driven him to search out an eclectic list of life experiences. His pursuit of a career in aviation led him to Calgary in 2000, where he found endless opportunity, none of which was in the job of aviation. His passion for business led him to develop his own online health and fitness software program, as well as a full-service active weight loss and personal training center. After exiting the fitness business, his guest took his newfound love of marketing and co-founded Clear Mode of Marketing in 2007. With offices in Calgary and Toronto, his goal was to build a marketing-first agency focused on better connecting clients to their customers. As an entrepreneur, his experience told him that establishing better communication by gaining an understanding of clients' business challenges would make the difference. With an appreciation of the impact digital transformation has on the way companies do business, his focus has always ensured that clear motive shapes the curve of how digital solutions can affect greater outcomes. As host of two podcasts, They Just Get It and Collisions YYC, he brings a voice to advocates, challengers, and thought leaders to inspire lively dialogue and bold actions towards creating a better Calgary. A strong advocate for helping those less fortunate, he also established Red Express in 2010, a project that puts Christmas toys in the hands of kids in need. In 2012, this guest was recognized as one of Avenue Magazine's top 40 under 40. Please welcome to the show, Tyler Chisholm. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us today. Jared, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm looking, I'm looking, it's interesting being on the other side of the microphone. I already, I can, I can feel a little bit nervous, the nerves. <laughs> the tables have turned. Yes, they have. I'm looking forward to it, man. Thank you for reaching cool. out. Honored to, honored to be on your show. Excited to have a good old fashioned chat. And I am honored to have you here. And I want to start off with a thought experiment. It goes without saying that you have obviously achieved so much in your life. Anybody that listened to that bio can can obviously recognize that. And I want to start off by this exploring this thought experiment. So if you had to start over right now and you had to build a million dollar business in a year and you don't have any of the reputational advantages that you do now, what business would you start? And I also want to make it clear that it doesn't necessarily have to be a marketing agency. Okay. Can, can I ask a couple of clarifying questions before we get started? Do it. What's my capital situation? How much money do I have? Good question. You have access to, let's say $250,000. Oh, I have 250K to start. Okay. Where, where am I? You can be anywhere. Okay. Let's, let's be in Calgary. Let's, 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 Calgary is a city that's very close to my heart as you as you may have gathered through my Collisions podcast, I'm very bullish on Calgary and motivated for doing everything I can to help the future. So I'm going to start here. Um, okay, so it's 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 current times, right? This is not getting launched a year from now. We're we're seven months COVID. We're coming into fall. 
Uh, I got to start from zero. I've got $250,000 of seed money. Um, I'm in a market that has got a lot of businesses that have been deeply challenged. So I would probably look for something where I believe there was an opportunity uh, that there's already an existing business in place. So I would use an acquisition or some type of a, of, a, of, a, of a fast forward strategy to get me into a market that already has potentially, what I would hope for is a business that's been running for a while. There's potentially uh, an ownership group or maybe a sole proprietor that's looking to like, okay, I've kind of had enough. Like I need to, I need to move out. Based on that, I would look for a business that I would assess that has not optimized around different technologies, has not looked at, um, I'm not even going to get into specifics, whether it's just different ways of automating, different ways of augmenting the customer experience that can take what, you know, the goal would be to find something where there is a strong value. There is a competitive advantage. There's something that they do or have, whether it's technology, whether it's a way of doing business, uh, maybe not a technology. I would hope, I would hope that there was some room for technology to kind of, to ladder up my value proposition, but primarily are they meeting a customer need and has that just been, have they been through some challenges, but do they have upside? Do they have upside in this market? Do they have upside to expand beyond our borders? Has it been something that's done really well in the Calgary market over the last 20 years, 15 years, the market's now changed. The business is still viable, but it's struggling. To me, that would be an opportunity to get to that million dollars pretty quick. And obviously, there's a million things you can dissect to kind of get into that. But I think that's that's my first place to start. I wouldn't start with the raw idea. It just takes so much time. Like if I had to go back and do it again, would I? Yes. But starting from scratch is a challenge. And not to say that, not to demotivate, but just be reality. So being able to start into an existing business where there's opportunities to improve, where there's a solid competitive advantage, a, a, a relevant proposition that clients find value in that can be optimized. Maybe the business is struggling or they're back on their heels because they haven't, they've just kind of run out of enthusiasm for it, but there's still something viable. I think that's where I would look to to make that idea come alive. And potentially I'm already, you know, coming into and, you, and you, sorry, I didn't clarify, is that a million dollar top line or bottom line number? Top line. Okay. Well, I could already be there. So I think I could maybe beat your six, your, your 12 month, you know, strategy, but the profitability would become another, I think there'd be some more parameters in our game here if we were going to expand this a little bit more, but that's how I would approach it right off the bat. And I think there's a lot of really solid opportunities here for businesses that need a fresh injection of energy and enthusiasm. Cause let's be honest, it's been a challenging time over the last five years. The last seven months has been a whole nother bag of tricks for businesses but I'm very inspired around the stories I hear uh, in, around the city of companies that are pivoting, adapting, using technology to bring their value proposition even more to the customer, to customers outside of this market, geography, borders, you know, the global village that we now live in because of digital. I think there's a lot of exciting potential around that. And that's how I would approach your challenge. You spoke about purchasing a business. Is there anything that comes to mind as a leader in that group that you would start to pursue? No, I don't. I don't think there's anything specific. I think I would keep my aperture open uh, and look for. I know lots. I, I have lots of friends who work in those spaces and the amount of amount of opportunities they look at to find something. So I think you know I would probably narrow it down to something that you know certain criteria for me. I think technology technology would need to be able to play a strong factor in its growth potential. I think geography. An industry, there's got to be some room to expand it outside our market. Like Calgary needs to diversify and 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 not have have more than one horse in the race. I think that this would be a business that I would have to look at and say, okay, is there is there national or international potential for customers? Is there product market fit in other jurisdictions that this has never even been exposed to this offering? So those are some of the things I would look at from a criteria in terms of scalability and knowing that my market is bigger than maybe my own backyard and looking beyond that. And maybe that's a business that's done really well in its own backyard, but is never even expanded. Maybe it's even a business that's not 
experiencing as many challenges right now, but that goal and that opportunity for growth and the energy that's required to do that, including a little bit of money and depending on what that looks like. So I wouldn't limit myself to one specific area. What kind of guiding principles do you think that you would need to take forward with you on that 12 month journey that you've already learned from your 15 years of entrepreneurship that's predated today? Oh, guiding principles. That's a, that, that's a, Jared, you're dropping the big ones, right? We're, 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 six, we're six minutes in, you're throwing me, you're throwing me guiding principles. <laughs> Wait till 12 minutes. Yeah, no, I've, I know. That's what I was thinking. I'm already, I'm already starting to sweat beads of sweat rolling down my brow. Um, <laughs> let me see what, from a fundamental principles, uh, oh, clarity, like let's talk about the need for understanding. Let's immediately talk about building a team because I'm not going to do this alone. I have no interest in doing things alone. I like to surround myself with with people that have different viewpoints than me, but they're you know shared values, understanding observable behavior, things like being accountable, things like being helpful, things like being resourceful, things like you know being curious to learn, uh, not scared to speak up. Things that I've learned over the years of running my current business of these aren't these aren't fluffy things to put on the walls and go these are our values trust integrity like those are table stakes let's talk about what really happens on a tuesday morning when you're confronted with a problem are you going to be helpful to the customer are you going to be helpful to your to your team so you know basing my values and basing on how we act around very distinct observable behaviors is something that i've definitely early on in business i didn't look at them that way i looked at maybe what a lot of people do and throw up trust and integrity. And I just keep picking on those two. I had a, I had a coach years ago say, you know, you have to pick, you can only, you're only allowed to pick a value for your company that has a viable alternative. And I was like, hmm, okay. I pondered that for a second. I said, well, all right, you got me. Give me more. He goes, well, trustworthy. Being dishonest is not a viable alternative to running a business. Being trustworthy is table stakes. Having integrity, he goes, having no integrity, is that viable? And I'm not taking a shot at anybody who has those up on their walls. And if they live them, obviously kudos to them and they, and they need to lean in on it. But looking for things, so guiding principles around what's real where the rubber meets the road and the concept of observable behaviors and really understanding, you know, when you talk about be helpful, you don't have to really define what it is. Everybody kind of knows. Even if it's their own version, it's probably going to be pretty close to accurate. So those are the kind of things that will unite a team and really ignite people around that around that discretionary effort and that want to literally lean in when they know we're all, everyone around them is kind of operating from a similar song sheet of behavior that can be, that, that's visible and tangible and you can experience it. So right out of the bat, I think that's where I think something I didn't know years ago and didn't really appreciate that I've learned over the last few years of actually making it more simple and making it more almost pedestrian and it's in its way you can utilize it in running your business. You're already setting yourself up to deal with all the other challenges that are going to show up when you're trying to build anything. You spoke about building a team. What kinds of things do you look for when you're starting to build that team? What do we need them to accomplish? I think the biggest area of, of, of strip and fall for a lot of businesses, big and small, is not taking the time to really clarify what it is that that person needs to be doing. Like really tangible, not this high level. You need to be, you know, like... Uh, uh, They've got to have an understanding, like, what are they going to be measured against? What does success look like? And I find it's so easy because it's hard to do, or I've certainly found it hard. And recruiting in the past, you meet someone and like, oh, it's a good fit and I like them and it works and they seem like they're really enthusiastic and they have a good resume. But they think they're going to be doing one thing. You think you might think they're going to be doing another, or you know, that's the whole hire slow, fire fast kind of my, mindset. So I think coming for building a team, you have to do the hard work yourself out of the gate to really understand what it is you need that person to do in the way that it's going to create value 
in court against your business. You know, if we're going to deliver X, we need people that know how to do Y. Let's be really crystal clear when we bring those people on for their sake and ours and ultimately our end customer that everyone's aligned right at a gate. And that is a very easy thing to do because in my experience, it's challenging to do. It's hard work because it's a bit conceptual. You've got to look into the future and you've got to be able to put that down at the same time in black and white. So somebody can look at it and go, yeah, I'm, I want to do that and I'm comfortable being measured against that. Let's say that you've bought that business that you're talking about and you're getting ready to launch and to get working on it. What do you do in the first 30 days after having purchased that business? What are some of the big high-level things you want to achieve? Well, the first thing I'm going to do outside of the conversations I've already had is I'm going to go talk to all the customers. 100% find out what's going on, what's their experience, what do they love, what they don't love. Whether I do that or, or engage someone to do it, I would want to do it as wanting to build those relationships and getting to know, but I want to get as much intel and as much insight from our most the most valuable asset of that business, which is the customers. Obviously, very quickly after that, obviously the team, like those are pretty aligned. Obviously, I can't say... Ultimately, the customer is the ultimate manager. They can they can hire you or fire you every day. But also, your most valuable resource, which is your team, can go home every night. So those are all those are cliches. I think maybe the same person said both those. I think I think maybe it's, maybe Sam Walton, if I'm not uh, uh, mistaken. But leaning in as hard as I can to find as many insights I can of where I can create value quickly. And that value win is going to be from the customer's perspective and very quickly aligned from the team's perspective of injecting that fresh sense of like oh you know, the future is going to be better. And I think that as a leader, I had someone, I had a coach ask me this years ago, we're in a coaching session. She says, uh, says, Tyler, what's your number one, uh, what's your number one role as a leader? I'm like, oh, this is, this is, oh, this is a heavy one. I'm like, hmm. Being handsome. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> working on it. Um, <laughs> work, working on it. Uh, he said, I said, I don't, I don't, I said, I said, Ron, I don't, I don't know. He was an ex, uh, ex, he was a, a base commander from CFB Cold Lake. So ex fighter pilot, ex base commander, ex military guy, Air Force guy. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be big. And he goes, hope. I go, what do you mean, hope? He goes, if you can't instill hope in the people around you that the future is going to be better than it is today, that you failed as a leader. So I think the number one thing I would want to do in those first 30 days is in a tangible, tactile way, be able to create the hope and excitement of building a better future for the customer and for the team that's going to be able to deliver and support against it. Well, that's a beautiful example, and I think political campaigns have been based on that note, on that <laughs> sentence wait, as well. it, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dragging in, it in, through in the this, mud. In this case, I don't want to be lying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, that was a cheap shot at the, at the point. Thank you very much. Now, let me re, let me reframe my words. Okay, we're going to do an edit at 12 minutes and 20. You said at 12 minutes, it would get it would get tricky. We did. You were going to try to throw me out of the bus. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> No, I, I appreciate the perspective, but yes, be, be very genuine in that, in that approach because um, you get to fool people once. I don't believe you get to fool them twice. People are intuitive. People are smart. And, you know, the fool me once, shame on, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you kind of mindset. I know you spoke about talking to customers and I think young entrepreneurs out there, one thing that I hear often, a struggle that they face is how to create a customer-centric business. Do you have any recommendations for those folks? Get out there and talk to people. First, first, first and foremost, get your idea out of the basement. Get your idea off the back of a napkin. Get your idea out into the world that is going to be the people that will ultimately give you money at the end of the day. They're going to trade their trust and their hard-earned dollars for the value that you're going to create for them. So go out and talk to them. And I think too many people stay inside their own bubble. And actually, I was on a, I was on a, strate- on a strategy call today with uh, with one of our large clients. I don't want to. I won't get into details because it was a very. Um, humble call on their front to say, listen, we lost sight of what the customer wanted because we believed we knew better. 
and we were wrong. We got our pro- product market fit right. We actually didn't offer things that they needed. We took away things that they valued because we actually thought we knew better. And I think that's a really tricky balance because you know there's old the old uh, Henry Ford joke: if they, if you asked the customer what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. I think there is a degree sometimes people can't ask for what they don't want, but what they do typically understand is the problems that they have that you that they want they would love your help to solve. And I think really understanding the problems before you even understand, you know, I've got this solution. Is it a hammer running around looking for a nail? Or is it really understanding that they want to get these two pieces of wood to stay together? And a nail might be an option, but you've got a better version of a nail. And then you're going to go and refine that and bring it forward because their problem was those two pieces of wood that wouldn't stay together. You know, you but you had a hammer and they're running around trying to find those two pieces of wood. That's not customer centric. That's that's not product market fit. That's trying to that's trying to ram your, your offering down someone's throat. Well, that's, that was aggressive, but it doesn't. I don't find it typically works that well. It's my experience. <laughs> what does that process look like? I think it sounds so easy to <laughs> to to say it, but to actually go out and do it is something that takes a lot of rigor, I'm sure, and there's nuance to it. Can you talk about that? There is absolutely, and I think like I think it really scales and 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 depends on which stage of the journey that you're at and what size and scope you're dealing with. If you're a sole proprietor or you're a guy with an idea or a guy or a gal, I say a guy, I use that word generally, but if you're anyone with an idea, it's hard to go, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to go out and do customer journey mapping and I'm going to do empathy mapping, experience mapping. I'm going to build, develop a service blueprint and you're going to do all these things that are not necessarily going to be relevant. Well, if you don't even have those relationships or those customers that are willing to engage with you on that way. Getting out and having conversations, I, you know, I find it, let's speak about Calgary. This is an amazing city for being able to have conversations with people. The willingness for people to give their time, their experience, their, to offer their help, it is phenomenal. And the, the power of reaching out and asking for someone's opinion is magical in itself. We love to be asked what we think about things. We love to share our insights. There's a lot of people in the city with incredible wisdom and incredible talent and experience in certain industries and in certain certain sectors like subject matter expertise. You can go to them and get an understanding of their problems. So I think part of it, and I saw I'm sounding very grassroots around it, if you're a larger organization, you have tools and you have surveys and you have net promoter score, you have different ways to deal with your customers to get their feedback. We're talking about the entrepreneur journey and the the startup or the super that we're lean and we're mean and we don't have all those resources and we don't have time. Have as many conversations as you as you can. You know, um, Cement is a very as a Calgary success story. I'm not sure you're familiar with them. They spent, I think, uh, I talked to um, the CEO. And he told me they spent how many months, I think 18 months or something, just out interviewing customers, uh, finding out what their potential biggest problem is. And I don't know the exact guise of how they created that and how they got these people in the room. Clearly, they have relationships. And so they talked to a lot of the large utilities and said, what's your number one problem? And they identified being able to predict churn before it happens. And so now they went away and said, okay, great. We're going to come back to market with a solution. I'm probably really butchering their whole story right now. I'm just was a quick paraphrase, but go look it up. They came back with like, okay, let's use artificial intelligence intelligence to develop a mapping tool to be able to understand when that customer is going to churn. What are some of the signals and how can we predict that so then we can, which AI does a good job around automation, so we can use our judgment to go in then and get to that customer before they get to a place where we lose them. But they did that purely by going out and understanding the problem before they ever came to market with a solution is the way he told me the story. Why don't more businesses focus on becoming customer centric? Simple answer, ego. I think we think we know so much. I think we think we know all the answers. I think we're probably a little bit scared to all of a sudden find out that we don't. 
We ha- heaven forbid someone finds out we're not as smart as we, as, as they think we are. <laughs> Maybe imposter syndrome. That's a, I was in an executive room once and there was probably, I don't know, 15 people in the room, guys and gals. And there was a speaker and they said, she came in and she opened her day with this. This was an executive session. I was in tech. We'll give tech a little plug here. I've had a great experience. It's been a phenomenal supporter of me and my growth over the years. I would recommend if you're not, if you don't have a peer group like that, see, whether it's EO, whether it's tech, search that out as a first or a mastermind group, Jared, a little plug for what you're doing. No. As well, wow, I think that, that that's is a, a make, good one. That is a maker. That is a maker break. Um, <laughs> you might want to check out uh, Jared and his and his and his and his group and where they can help you in that. Um, we'll talk offline. A little, you know. Anyways, we'll we'll we'll, we'll deal with that promotion after. <laughs> um, and she said, "Who in this room is worried that people around them are going to find out one day they're not as smart as they think they are?" And this was a room that I was the young and I was like, "Oh, you know, like okay, I don't even know if I have the right to be in this room." Over half the people in the room put up their hand. I was like, wow, that was a humbling but yet leveling experience to understand about how many people are, are, are scared to not to find out that maybe they didn't have the whole answer and how much kind of a sense of oneself needs to be there to go, hey, you know what? Wow, we were wrong. Man, good thing we got all that new information and we didn't go to market with the wrong solution. It's really easy to say as you and I are sitting here right now. It's a lot harder to do when you have to sit in front of your team and say, hey, that strategy we're working on for the last three months, we've got some new information. And it's probably not going to fly. And that takes that. That's not a business. That that's that's a very human experience, I would say. And the amount of the amount of confidence and the amount of self awareness and humility it takes to do that. So sometimes it's easier just not to go out and ask the question. What are some of the flaws you think that companies run into if they're trying to become more customer centric? This is the way we've always done it. We can't. Oh, we can't. We can't do that. That's impossible. Don't they understand this is what our industry needs? Oh, don't they know that like we have regulations? What about liability? We can't, oh my God, no way. We can't, well, that's, we can't do it that way. Oh, this is my inner voice. Well, we can't change it because what, what, if that's not, if we don't, if we don't have to do all that paperwork now, like, I'm going to lose my job. Like, that's what I do. That's my thing. Why would I change that? But let's not forget, it's just still a bunch of humans running around having a group experience that we happen to just call a company. And, you know, you think about all those things, it can really get in the way. Like, that's where I do believe there's so much importance in leading by example and getting out there and going like, hey, we're going to do things differently. And if it, if, it, if it frees up your schedule and it means you don't have to do that thing anymore that the customer didn't benefit from and maybe you didn't enjoy that much either, we're going to get you doing something else that has more value. And I think that's one thing. And I'm, I'm being very philosophical. But again, we can talk about all this, you know, black and white business stuff. But at the end of the day, it's a bunch of humans and we're kind of messy, especially when you jam us all together. Tyler, you've been doing this marketing stuff for so long now. I can imagine that at some point it gets almost exhausting. What are you still passionate about in the field? All of it's still exciting because it's always changing. Every company has a different challenge. Every company has a different relationship with their customer. Every company can use channel. A channel makes it differently. Every company is constantly struggling with getting their message right because even when they get it right the world changes and their message needs to change so if you have um, business add and really like to live inside a case study that's always churning and you're always having to learn and be agile then marketing is there's other businesses but i chose marketing because of that the part that gets exhausting and uh not speaking about anyone in particular, the amount of people say they want to do things differently, but then are too scared to do things differently. That sometimes gets frustrating because sometimes you just want to do the thing. And again, it's easy to say when you're the consultant on the outside going, oh my God, you should completely change your business to this. Trust me, it'll be awesome. So it's really easy to be that when you're the consultant. 
But the part that gets exhausting is like, ah, oh, like we could just, if you want a different result, we got to try something different. And that willingness to go like, let's do 70% safe. Let's do 20% stretch and let's do 10% like a crazy idea. Like let's do a 10% lab. Like let's just try it and see if it works. But it's amazing how many companies and cultures out there are still very scared to quote unquote, get it wrong, which in marketing is tough because there's a really blurry line between right or wrong in our world. So that could become a bit exhausting. But again, I'm not, I don't want to whine. That's just the reality of it. It's an incredibly exciting space also because as a marketer, it forces it, it. You have no choice but to really learn and understand businesses and understand how they function and what's important to them, what's important to their customers. But only that, what's their culture? What's their internal dynamic? What's going to hold them back from change? What's going to be that big thing that maybe like... What's the thing that their customer cares about the most that they actually do that they kind of take for granted and don't bring out as a message? It's, it, you know, it's only, it only, it only becomes dull if you stop paying attention. You mentioned some of these flaws that external businesses may run into either not embracing the change and the newness, or maybe there isn't a culture of innovation. How do you avoid that with your organization at Clear Motive? Hmm. You're saying that we avoid it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping my team might listen to this. Well, I want to, Hey, I'm not going to, there's no prophesizing and like, we've got it all figured out. It's amazing. It's perfect over at clear motive. We deal with challenges because that's the reality. And when you're work hard to have a culture that's, you know, right now working remotely, we have not been in the office since, uh, I think March 14th. I think that was the Friday we went to remote on March 16th. So we've been working remotely teams in Toronto and Calgary since then. And there's been some challenges, there's been some bonuses, there's been some absolute upsides, but there's been some challenges around keeping people connected. But when you work so intimately and, and immersively with your client, there's a lot of times it's a very big challenge to keep your culture intact and to keep your culture like this is who we are and this is how we operate and this is what we value. And you know we value being accountable and being helpful and being resourceful. It's really challenging when your client doesn't necessarily val 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 value those same things. And that's where I think we run into. So how do we keep it together? I gave you the reasons of where, where it strains and where it struggles. How we keep it together, I think, is, is being transparent about it, constantly bringing it back to the values, bringing it back to like, oh, hey, if something didn't go the way we wanted, was everybody accountable in that situation? Were we helpful? Trying to make that common language. And it, it is a struggle because you just get wrapped up in the moment and get wrapped up into the stress of how you're feeling and how it makes you feel as an individual and go, you know, oh, so-and-so did this and it caused that. It's like, well, actually, were you helpful to them? Were they accountable? You get, were you guys were you resourceful to figure out the problem? So having lots of touch bases with our team, I don't believe there's any such thing as over-communicating anymore. You need to communicate and communicate and then communicate it more. I heard a good one the other day. What's the myth about communication? It's that it happened. <laughs> so I think that that's something that we 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 strive to bring to the table in terms of making the, feel that there's a high degree of inclusion that people are part of the solution and they see their fingerprints on things, especially when it's change. Getting input and not saying, "Hey, we came back down from the ivory tower and here's an amazing idea that's going to solve all your problems." That does not fly, and that will fragment a team, and that creates the meeting after the meeting, and that creates the you know the. Geez, I can't believe they did that versus including people and going, at least if we went in a different direction, at least they were part of the conversation. And that can be hard to do when you're busy because we're all busy and we're all trying to do more with less right now. But I think that's how we do it is lean in, lean in on that. And where we, where we do challenge is not every client we work with shares the same values. So trying to maintain that integrity while also being very immersive and being customer centric and doing what the client needs the way they, the way they need it done sometimes can compromise yourself in the process. And I think in an idealistic world, it's like, wow, you're going to, you're going to break up with those clients and you're going to move on. You do, it's, that's not reality. You don't always have, you don't always have that luxury. Sometimes it does come to that, 
but sometimes you also have to adapt and and be resourceful in just how you deal with them and work on maintaining the integrity of your own culture at the same time. I know marketing is such a great lens into business. It gives you such a great idea on lead flow and how to communicate your values and and what your product's offering and also match that up with the marketplace and what it, the marketplace is looking for. And so my question to you is what kind of advice would you give to young entrepreneurs around marketing? And maybe it's specific to marketing, or maybe it's kind of a broader, a broader comment on, on business generally. Is there any advice you'd have for folks listening? A, a little nuance in terms of what you said that I caught a little bit that gave me that little like mm, that little jolt was that you know the the ability to communicate like who you are and what you're all about and the value that you provide through your marketing. Let's not forget that the best the single best way to communicate that is through delivering the thing that you deliver. So remember, your brand isn't what you say in your marketing; it's what your customer experiences when they interact with you. And I think that's start with that and work backwards and really understand. Like, I guess there's always the fun of the ideal state. Like, this is how we're going to act, and this is how we're going to deliver, and this is the promise, and this is the. But ultimately, there's nothing worse as a human than inconsistency. Of like, oh, they said they're going to be easy to work with, but wow, there was 27 thing questions I had to answer on their Q questionnaire to even get to use the service that didn't seem like easy to work with but but their brand promise was simple simplicity or you know those kind of things make sure that whatever you're saying out there into the world like start with the service that you're offering first and how you're offering it and then make sure your message is congruent with that and if you don't like what's showing up like hey we're really nice people but we're really challenging to work with if that's not what you want to say then don't be challenging to work with because those things like marketing will never overshadow a poor product experience or a delivery process. So start with back to that customer journey mapping, a little bit of the user experience mapping we talked about, which to me is a fundamental piece of customer centricity. Understand, or you know, one that I really love that I don't see used that often is, is empathy mapping, really understanding the journey that that customer is, is going on and then looking to go, okay, how do we change that? How do we remove friction? Like really understanding where that, where that lives. And I think that that's a combination of it. A marketing message is really exciting, but you've got to really understand what the mindset is of the customer while they're going through your experience, because that's the thing they're going to tell people about. They might tell people about your cute commercial, but they're more often going to tell them about the amazing or less than amazing experience that they had with you. That is your brand. Can you go deeper on the empathy mapping? I've never heard of that. I'm looking at the definition in front of me right now. I pulled it up earlier because I was like, I want to bring this one up. And you know, it's helped you help your team members understand the user's mindset, a tool used to articulate what we know about a particular type of user. And and externalizing user knowledge in order to create a shared understanding and aid in decision making. Um and creating, I mean, creating those empathy maps for each customer. So really understand, are they frustrated here? Are they excited about a new opportunity? It's an interesting tool because it does take a little bit more of a, of a research-driven process. It's hard to give someone a questionnaire and you can do it that way. I do like sitting down, especially back to the entrepreneur stage of actually having those conversations. And, and you know, says, does, thinks, feels, if you really want to look at it that way. What, what is it that they say versus what they do? And what do they think about a situation? And how, do they and how do they feel about it? And there are some tools to do this. And it's something I've only seen done a couple times. And I didn't, I didn't facilitate it. To be, I want to be really transparent. I was the receiver of it. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Because it had a much more human side to it. And like, oh, they went here and then they did this. It's like, no, they said this. They said, I was, you know, this process was really challenging. So therefore they did what? They went to customer support. When they went to customer support, they said, oh, you know what? I got what I wanted really, really quickly. And I felt heard and actualized. I'm great. Versus like, I was super frustrated. What did I do? I went to customer support. 
I don't think that anyone actually cared because no one responded to me for 24 hours. How did they feel? They feel disappointed and let down. And we can know that that will typically lead to them going somewhere else. So it's going through the necessarily understanding, not just their actions and maybe how they would articulate those actions, but what the, what feeling they were left with after engaging with your product, or your services, or, or what part of the experience. It's a bit feels a bit philosophical and a bit fluffy, but again, back to being humans, we're, we we think we're logical, but we're, we're I think emotion tends to drive us more often than not. And how is that different from the customer journey? Um, I think the customer journey is can be much more. Um, pedestrian in the sense that you can lay it out in terms of like, what is the journey the customer goes on? Where do they go? Like, okay, let's just look at the journey from when they first meet us or like, okay, I heard about you through a friend. Then I went to your website. Then from your website, I actually read a couple of blog articles from the blog articles. I actually went and started following you on social from social. I actually went into, so we're on the, we're, oh, then I actually engaged with, so, you know, that old saying now, I think that people are probably 70%. I think there's, there's mixed, <laughs> it depends what study you want to read. <laughs> Be careful with percentages. What is it? Uh, 80% of percentages are made up on the spot. Is there something? <laughs> <laughs> about that as well. So I'm going to say a bold 70% or you're a considerable way down the funnel or down the journey to purchase before you ever contact so much more of a self-directed buyer's journey now, depending on the product. But for most things now, we, we are, we're all, um, we're all private detectives in terms of how we research things. And then we engage and then we purchase and then let's keep that journey going. Okay, I received the service. Then I actually wrote a, re a referral or I had a customer service request or I was hit up with another offer. Did I buy again? Did I not? So mapping that all out, it's a little bit more, I would say, logical and structured and analytical and a little bit more on, less on the conceptual side. Or it can, it can be certainly on a more, how I see it used more often than not. Do you think it's possible to sell potential customers on a really quality customer journey versus the product. Like maybe you're competing in an industry that is pretty standardized in the product that you're offering, but there may not be as much differentiation in the customer journey. Is it possible to kind of turn that on its head? I would say absolutely. No, with, 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 without question, because if you're going to take like how many industries, like let, let, let's think about it for a second. What's, what's, what's been, what's been commoditized? You know, or, or sorry, what was it commoditized? We want to pick on the obvious ones. We want to go to the 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 blockbuster versus Netflix. You know, we want to go to the the hotels versus Airbnbs. We want to go to, um, you know, if you want to look at, uh, I read an interesting article, and that's they've they've not been that in the last couple of years. But originally, Uber's there was a lot of marketers that would say, ah, oh, Uber didn't done hasn't done a lot with their brand because the experience they gave you was getting a ride. But the experience they did of personalizing it, putting it in your phone, making it easy, taking all the negatives away from the cab experience. So I would say that the, the customer experience that you received to get a ride was considerably better. If the cab companies would have done that, I actually had a ride in a cab. Uh, you know, there was that period of time in Calgary where Uber came in and I think it got paused and yes. uh, because City Hall couldn't get out of their own way around the, let's, res <laughs> let's resist the future. No, that's probably not going to happen. I guess there's still cities that do that. So anyways, again, maybe I'll get some hate mail from that, whatever. Most people love using Uber. And I was with a cab. I was I took a cab because there was no Uber that, that at that period of time, and so I said, "Hey man, like what like what's what, what are your thoughts on this whole Uber business?" He's like, "Ah, those guys with their app. We've had that for years, but we just didn't bother putting it out." I was like, "Screw you guys, man!" <laughs> I was like, "You're stuck. and he said in this kind of ego, like we've had that forever. We just didn't want to give it to the customers or something. It was kind of a shitty thing to say. It was the opposite of customer centric, I would say. And I was like, "Yeah, now look who's eating your lunch because you provided me the thing I needed, which was really to just get from A to B. That's really all. That's really it. Still did it. Still did the exact same task." But that whole experience of that customer journey was so much better. Like the way that they delivered the the end result, which is A to B. 
completely disrupted an, an industry, you know, and there's many, 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 many examples of that. So I would say absolutely without, without question, if you're, you know, what, what is it about that? The, where can you remove the friction? Where can you, you know, uh, the old surprise and delight, but I don't even, uh, where can you just make it easier? Where can you remove the friction for the customer? There was an article I read years ago in uh, Harvard Business Review, but I think it was in 2010. And it was something about the fact that stop, so, stop trying to surprise and delight your customers and just make their life easier and remove the friction from everything you d- they have to do to interact with you. And you will get way better results than just trying to blow them away with something amazing. Just be easy to work with by removing friction in the steps. Had the power to actually move the needle more than the whole surprise and delight and kind of blow them away kind of concept. Sometimes you blow me away just by being easy. And I thought that was a really interesting kind of, kind of, kind of twist on that old adage of like, no, no, you got to just blow them away. And like, there's got to be streamers and, you know, like people with confetti guns and all that. You don't have to do that all the time. It's nice. I think people enjoy it. But man, on a Tuesday morning at nine o'clock, please be easy to work with, please. Tyler, I know you as somebody who is obviously always aiming to achieve more and to strive and, and to do these additional things. You've got two podcasts. You've got the clear motive. You've, you've founded businesses in the past. How do you balance that striving with the need and the desire to stay present in the moment? That's a very interesting question. I, find, I, I do that a lot of ways. I've, I've, well, I've, first of all, I create experiences for myself that are very immersive that demand my undivided attention. <laughs> so that's, you know, if anyone who knows me or knows anything about me, I snowboard fast, I race motorcycles, I fly planes, I do all those kind of things that people are like, oh, it's because you're a speed junkie, you're an adrenaline junkie. It's like, no, 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 I'm a presence junkie. Those those sports or those activities, because the consequences are sometimes often death. I'm sorry, that sounds very. Da-da. This is where you insert the music. Um, they require a high degree of presence, and that like being in the moment. And sometimes it's challenging to be in the moment. And monkey mind, and your mind jumps all around. When you're on a motorcycle, you know, doing 200k on the back straight of a Sano, and you're taking this like right hander. That seems not really like a corner, but a 200, it's a corner. The amount of presence that it demands and the amount of uh, kind of zen you get from being in that moment because it forces you to be in that moment. And then I try to bring that into other aspects of my life of being present. Like I'm talking to you right now and my email's going off beside me and my phone's going off and something in my calendar. And I'm like, no, because this matters. This is important. And if it doesn't matter enough to pay attention to it, then why the hell am I wasting my time doing it? And, you know, that doesn't happen all the time. There's idealistic. I don't bounce from data, like moment to moment in a day, like going, you know, 15,000 RPM, but creating as many opportunities as I can to create, to, to create situations that force me to be present and then constantly working and to be, be better at it the rest of the time. So again, maybe if I'm being very, you caught me at the end of the day, I'm being very philosophical with my answers tonight, maybe a little bit, but that's, that's the, how I do it. And all of those activities also really lend to my constant desire for that that subtle that 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 notion of self improvement. Oh, I could do a little bit better. I could have answered that question. A little, I could have maybe talked a little slower, make it a little bit easier for the audience to keep up versus my hundred mile an hour talking speed. How can I always do things a little bit better to create a better outcome, either for myself or people I'm interacting with? So that. You'll always see me do sports or activities, I should say, not just sports, that there's always an opportunity to slightly get better. I can go back and listen to my first five podcasts. You know what? My last five were better. And that makes me excited. I'm like, you know, you're kind of joking. They they damn well should be. But that's the whole point for me is is working in environments where I can improve. That's why I do love business because there's always an opportunity to improve any aspect almost at any time. Yeah, I found that with life too. It's it's not about the end state and i think that it's so 
popularized to see folks at the end of, of being successful. And we often lose out on those moments in between. And that's really where life is, is just like you said, getting better at doing your podcast or, or making a, an experience better for your customers, whatever that is. I think that that's where life is. I, you know, I heard a joke, life's what happens when you're making plans. <laughs> I completely agree with you. So when you look at my life and go, oh, do this, do that. And it looks like I got a little bit of uh, ADD sometimes in terms of like, oh, I do this, do that. It's because all those things combined really add up to that, that really rich experience for me, which I, which I just, I love. I love adventures and adventures come in all shapes and sizes. You mentioned the podcast and in conjunction with kind of staying in the moment. And so like, obviously, you know, I've listened to your podcast and, and for the listeners out there, Tyler's got two, um, Collisions YYC is kind of the most the one you're putting, it seems like the most effort into and it's, yes, totally. it's excellent and, and you get, get tremendous guests on there. So please take a listen to that. And thank, course, thank you, Jared. Thank you. I, I always, it's so close to my heart when someone says, thank you so much. I really, that means a lot. Oh, and, and yeah, it's, it's very genuine. And for the listeners, it will also be linked of course, in the description. And um, do you think that you podcast in part to stay present? Short answer. Yes. Long answer. It's an interesting medium because I believe it's, you know, again, this sounds kind of silly to say it. It almost sounds egotistical, but it's not, that's not the intention at all. It's it, sometimes I feel like that's the best version of myself that shows up. I'm more curious. I ask more questions. I talk less. I am so generally interested and curious about what that individual is all about. Like, I just, I love it. It's like, I would, I, this is, again, I've said this joke too much. I would do it if no one listened. Like, it's such a, it's such a privilege to have those conversations. There's something about the context of that medium. And Jared, I don't know if this is a similar experience for you. I'd be curious where like it, it sets, if that person tends to be open, they show up open. It's, it's a conversation, but at the end of the day, you're the host and they're the guest. So it's like you almost get this permissibility to ask questions and be curious and really dive in and let them share their, their layers of knowledge and experience around something. And the interaction that happens to make what I believe is a good guest you know, host experience, I like that version of me that shows up. Like, so I do it and I get off. I'm like, wow, I need to bring more of that guy into the rest of my life all the time. And that's a pretty exciting, like that's, I feel very privileged to be able to have that experience. And like my energy for it has not diminished in the least. I'm going to be pushing out right now. We've loosely, and it's probably going to come sooner because we've got so many guests coming in right now. uh, It's, it's, it's kind of snowballed its own energy, but we're going to be have a, I'm going to have a, have had a hundred conversations or over a hundred direct conversations about economic transformation in Calgary with business leaders, influencers, investors, academia, non-for-profits in the last like 14 to 16 months since uh, I think the end of last August. That, that's, that's incredible privilege to be able to do that in the perspective that I hope I've shared with my audience. But selfishly, I've learned so much about it. Like I, I got to have to kind of say, I'm actually, that's my next on my list is to sit down and actually process in a little bit more of a structured format what I've actually learned and what insights I've taken away from, you know, over a hundred conversations with Calgarians and Albertans. It's been amazing. When you spoke about bringing your best self to a podcast, that really resonated with me. And it's actually resonated so much that I've even considered just live recording 12 hours of my day at a time so that I'm forced to be in the moment all the time. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, let me know how that goes. Let, let me know how that goes. That's awesome. Worst podcast ever. <laughs> <laughs> ah, but it's, it's got an angle to it. It's got, but it's the intention of why you did it that makes that interesting. How interesting yeah. the 12 hours is. I don't, Jared, I'll be honest. I don't know enough about your life to know that could be super interesting. Awful. Or, or it could be like, 
um, what's he, what's he doing now? Like what that sounds, is he going to the bathroom? What's going on there? <laughs> How transparent are we going to be on this podcast? But just the experience of why you did it. And I think that that's something that people can resonate with of being in the moment. Cause it's, uh, it doesn't come easy for me. I, I, I do things like go 200 kilometers an hour to be in the moment. So clearly I see, I seek out extreme experiences to give me no choice, but to be in the moment. So that shows that it's a bit challenging for sure. You said that your next step is diving deep into gaining some insights from those guests that you've interviewed the hundred plus guests that you've interviewed. Mm -hmm. What is the first thing or what are some of the first things that come to mind? If I asked you, what are some of those things that you've learned? I would say the uh, over, you know, and again, it sounds a little bit, a little bit fluffy, but overall, there is an incredibly positive and strong buy-in to Calgary, and maybe it's the people I talk to, but there isn't a like, yeah, you know, if it doesn't work out, we're going to bail. Like that is not the impression that I've got. There is a loyalty and there is a sense of community that exists in this city that. I've experienced before, but in a small town. So this is the biggest small town I've ever lived in. And I say that many, many times. And it's not that's not new to hear people say that about Calgary. It's not, nothing insightful there. But what does it mean? It means a sense of community. It means a sense of in it together. You know, we we have we're on a we're on a multi-year cycle change or you know, state change in terms of who we are as a city economically, who we are as as a group of industries bolted together and that share the space. But we have problems now. We have like, but it's this is going to take this is going to take time. So the level of buy-in and commitment that I've heard from people from all different walks of life and different levels of sophistication, and the and I've talked to people that are coming here like because of the opportunity. Because of I had somebody say, well, you know what? If you look across Canada, Calgary's right for being the next place that something big happens. So I want to be here when that when that happens. So that that underpinning. And it, it, you know, it's easy to overlook that when you hear about some of the negatives and you see hear about businesses closing and the struggles that are happening in the resource sector and how, how much support that industry has provided to our economy for so long and to have it be back on its heels for as long as it has now, over, going over five years. But the general sentiment of positivity is, is significant. And even in the last since started doing the podcast, I've seen the tech community grow. I've seen a different conversation coming from investors around different venture venture funds coming to Calgary to fill some of that early stage startup gap to to provide the 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 coal for the furnace on our startups. That's a really bad analogy to say coal for the furnace. <laughs> I am going to retreat maybe I don't know like we've got some interesting policies around coal in this province but like fuel to the fire and that yeah or or, or electricity for your generator. Yeah, wow. Okay, but that's super adequate to throw coal in the fire. Um, anyway, sorry. I hope everyone knows what I mean. It was a, it was a metaphor. It wasn't I wasn't literal, but um, I've recently had some. I've become very positive by some of the moves I've seen from Alliance Venture Partners, Harvest Harvest uh, Venture Group, uh, people coming to the West, coming to the Western provinces because of our attitude, our entrepreneurial nature, our you know, our pioneering nature that I think is a little bit in the past, but it's, it's there and it's coming back that, you know, I heard someone say like, you know, we got to get back to the days of barn building. Like if you're building a barn, I'm going to come over and help you because then you'll come help me when I do it. And I think Calgary is really well poised for that because of that community feel that we've got that runs, it's prevalent through every guest I talk to. I've heard you say in the past that you've used neuro-linguistic programming. Can you maybe talk about that? Oh, good old NLP. Hmm. 
which now it stands for natural language processing, depending what circle, what circles, what circles you're in now. I've been doing a lot of reading about AI lately. Something I'm really, really interested and curious about. Um, and that's a rabbit hole. <laughs> if anyone's gone, if a lot of people have gone down it. I'm just on the early stages of going down it now. NLP was something that I experienced very early in my life. I'll give you a, I'll give you a backtrack and I'll move fast forward. Um, back probably in the late '90s, I read a book called uh, "The Craft of the Warrior" by Robert Spencer. And I don't forget how old I was at the time. Like, I don't even know when it was mid 90s, early 90s. And it really, what it did is said, you know, living like a warrior. It's like, and probably caught my attention at the time because of the title. So good, maybe good marketing, good titling. Uh, but really it was a book about a gentleman who had explored all the different, different modalities that he felt would set you up to live your best life. So he talked about yoga. He talked about the Feldenkrais method. He talked about Tales of Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda and that whole world. He talked about Dan Millman and the Peaceful Warrior. He talked about NLP. He talked about, um, what else did he talk about? I forget. There's probably like half a dozen uh, or so different modalities that he explored and explained that why they would allow you to live a life that was free to be in the moment, free to not get caught up in you know weird drains on your life and stories you tell yourself in your mind that create negativity. And NLP was one of the things he recommended. So it came, it became a little bit of a workbook for me over the years of like, okay, I'm going to just like, and it, I don't think it was conscious at the time, I'm going to reverse engineering and unpacking it. But when I look back, it became a little bit of a roadmap for as I evolved and kind of moved to Calgary, I was around 26 and moved to a brand new community, didn't know anybody. There's a lot of time for self-exploration and like, who am I and who do I want to be? And is the version I've been so far really going to get me where I want to go? Eh, maybe not. Let's do better. And that's where that self-improvement cycle, I think, really started to generate for me. And got into yoga and uh, said, you know what, I'm going to search out NLP. And I found a practitioner here in town. And what it was at the time and the way I described it, I've done my NLP practitioner certificate twice, probably about 10 or 10, 12 years apart. And the first time was very different. The second time, different, different uh, practitioner uh, running the program. But these were like seven day, eight day intensives. And it was basically the study for me of really understanding internal and external communication, how I reference the world around me and how I communicate, but also how I communicate with myself. So a lot of self-talk. And am I moving away from something or moving towards something else? And am I like, what are my anchors? What are my triggers? And it really broke down a lot of really understanding my own thought process and then how that showed up in the world. So NLP was a really big mover for me. My first business was a health and fitness business, and we did a lot of coaching. And a lot of it was helping... Uh, it was about nutrition and fitness, but I'll be arguing. I don't, again, I might get some hate mail for this. Like nutrition and fitness is the easy part. It's, it's our mindset and it's our belief structures and it's how we show up and how we feel about ourselves and some of the baggage we have from the past and what we deserve and all those things. NLP really helped make me a much better coach and helping people get through the like, okay, so you didn't follow, you didn't follow, you didn't follow the plan that you said you were going to follow to eat this week. Let's talk about what's really going on versus like, oh, you didn't eat right. That's bad. You should eat better. Everybody knows an apple's better for them than the bag of chips, but why'd you choose the bag of chips? Let's talk about that. So NLP really helped me a lot understand my own way of engaging with the world, but also at that time really helped me, I would say, become a better coach for, for helping people on their health and fitness journey. And then I took it again a bunch of years ago and again, a lot of the same, but I was from a different place. So just different tools and really understanding language and the nuance of language and helping like as a leader, you're as a leader, you're a coach. If you're a good leader, you're a coach in my opinion. And you're needing to help people move past their, like a lot of times people have the technical skills, but what is it that's getting in their way? And oftentimes it's their belief structures and their understanding of how they're referencing the world. NLP really helped give me some filters around that and an understanding of where people are coming from and being able to help move it through. But it primarily was like, you know, first heal thyself. So it's very much uh, my first was getting my own kind of thoughts sorted out back in my, my late twenties, which seems like a lifetime ago now, Jared. <laughs> How do you dial in that self-talk? Oh, 
<laughs> with great effort. <laughs> it, it does your behavior match your goals. If your behavior is to be positive and be uplifting and be real with the people around you, you know, then would you talk to them the way you're maybe talking to yourself? So a little bit is just some accountability around, is this productive? Is this the cycle? And getting into it and creating some break states. Like you're stuck in a pattern of thought, like go do something like a pattern interrupt. I love that. Like, you know what? I'm in a pattern. I'm in a funk. I get up and I go do 10 squats and 10 pushups. I can't go find that same pattern in my thinking before because there's been a physiological change that gets me to break out of my thought process and go, okay, I'm going to come at this a little bit differently. Like if you're in a, if you're in a discussion with someone and you can't see their point of view, go sit in their chair, swap, swap chairs with them. And all of a sudden now your mind goes, oh, oh, this looks different. Oh, okay. Maybe I can literally see it from your point of view. So a lot of fun things like that are tricks that I use because the negative self-talk comes in or the unproductive self-talk, or it's not getting me anywhere. I try to use physical things for me because I'm a very physical person. I like fitness, I like doing like things where I can move and act. So getting up and just go, go downstairs, go upstairs, making a coffee, come back, sit at my desk. Two minutes or three minutes have gone by, but I have a different mindset and whatever my little like voice was, it's changed because I physically move my body. So that's a lot of what I do of being aware of it, but then also using physical things to break it. Break the, break the pattern if I don't feel it's, it's helping me. I want to finish up with maybe some recommendations for young entrepreneurs. And I know that you guys at Clear Motive have been really good at attracting these incredible clients like Honda, for example. And so what kind of advice would you give to young entrepreneurs about maybe attracting the type of client they want to attract? If I say customer centricity, am I cheating? Because I've said it 27 times already in the last 50 <laughs> Or empathy mapping. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, 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 first of all, like, let's be blunt. You've got to de-risk the situation for them. If a larger client, big, big likes to hire big because it's safer. You know, it's the old joke. Nobody gets fired for hiring IBM. Uh, you've, you've got to de-risk a little bit. So if you're looking for that big win, how do you, you know, one, look the part and marketing can really help like look professional, look like, make sure you've, you've, you've dotted, you've dotted the I's and crossed the T's and, and they're, they feel safe working with you in the sense that someone on that client side is going to take a risk to pick you. Try to minimize that risk as much as possible in terms of your ability to deliver because that's going to be a big a big fear for them. And, that, and that's very, very, very real. And again, it, every context is going to be a little bit different. So I'm speaking definitely more from the service side of things. And you can sell and you can pitch and you can do the big like, this is going to be great. But sooner or later, they're going to be like, how big's your team? Like, let's see your spreadsheet. Let, let's, actually, let's see your balance sheet. Let's, you know, I've had multiple RFPs where they demand to see your financials. All they're looking for is whether, whether you're stable or not. Mm. So thinking about the risk that they have to take on, and oftentimes, like when you're an entrepreneur, I never thought of that. That never crossed my mind. Like hiring me is risky. I'm like, what are you talking about? Hiring me is amazing. Like, wh why wouldn't you hire me? I can't believe you'd go with that other more experienced company that's been around for 20 years. It's ridiculous. What do they know? They're less risky than you are. <laughs> you know, how do you make it that it's actually more risky for them to not go with you because they could miss out on a cool opportunity? But don't forget that somebody somewhere is taking a chance to recommend you and sign that RFP or to sign that, sorry, that engagement of how, depending on the size, like if we're speaking about the larger and getting that bigger client, you know, when we, when we won Honda, we were nine people and that was what the closest, the closest agency to us in size at that point, I think it was 110 or 120 people. So that was our watershed moment. That was our turning point of going, Oh yeah, you guys have an agency. That's cute. It's like, you guys just won Honda. How the hell did you do that? And we did it by truly understanding their ask. So I don't want to get back into customer centricity. And when you win the RFP, you get to understand why you won afterwards if the client's transparent. And they're like, you just captured what our actual problem was better than those three other competitors that were like 10 times our size at the smallest, at the smallest level. 
And we'd worked with them before and we had very relevant industry knowledge and we had credibility and just were very known in, in the in the industry, in the motorcycle industry uh, when we first won with them. So that definitely helped. So that de-risked because we were also category experts in terms of our ability to understand their business and their product as well and be as passionate about it as they are. So that was also how I think we de-risked to them. Because they, they hired good, they hired marketers that were competent, but they hired enthusiasts in an industry that is built on enthusiasm. No one in Canada needs a motorcycle. I think they do, I would argue, but technically they don't. It's because you're going because you're passionate and excited about it. What kind of educational material, books, or courses would you recommend for a founder, a young CEO that wants to learn more about marketing? That is a big, that is a big, big ask. Cause I don't know, is it, is it a series of books anymore? Are you going to go listen to some Seth Godin? You're like, get out there and talk, listen to different people. You know, so much of it is the psychology and the nuance. And like to give you an exact, like, you know, the book I got into, and I don't even know if it's still relevant because it's been so long. Uh, why I got into this industry because I fell in love with the concept of brand and the power to create an identity and a, and a vision around something that was, that was bigger than the thing itself and people could connect with. And I ran the, I read the 22 immutable laws of branding. I don't know if it still holds up. A lot of things about brand are not that different today, like how we buy and how consumers engage has changed, but fundamentally there is still a lot of similarities. So that's the book that changed it for me. And I've read oh so many different things under the sun. What would be a good one to read right now? I might have to get back to you on that one because I'm like, I'm drawing a bank. I'm thinking of like some of the blogs that I've uh, followed. Brand Strategy Insider is one that I really, really like. Uh, publications. I'm just looking at what's in my list. Um, I, for years, I was an avid, avid reader of Harvard, Harvard Business Review. If you're going to be in business, make sure your business acumen. And as an entrepreneur, and I didn't come from this with a business background. I didn't come from this with like a marketing degree. So I was self-taught a lot and it was basically consuming everything I could from all different walks of life, from all elements of business in general, as, as well as marketing. Because when our value proposition has always been very strong from a client's perspective, that we understand their business at a very business level, not just from a marketing perspective. And so that was really required us to have a business acumen that was more than just marketing acumen, if that, if that makes sense. So that's where I've surrounded myself with all forms of business reading from, you know, getting the national post in paper format, you know, years and years and years ago and reading the business section cover to cover every morning to make sure that like I could, I got the lingo that I could talk the talk for some people that might not be relevant. They have business backgrounds and business degrees. I didn't. So I had to lean in and I kind of just, I surround myself with it and kind of immerse myself in it, maybe by osmosis and, uh, and let it work its way in. <laughs> So I will get back to you. I kind of skated around your answer because I'm not giving you exact books. I'm drawing a blank. I'm going to walk over to my bookshelf after and say, oh, I should have said this, this, and this. <laughs> well, the Harvard Business Review makes you sound really smart. <laughs> and, and I'm going to, can I be super honest? Can, yeah. is, this the, is this the honest part of the show? Oh, yes. I recently, um, I just canceled my subscription because I wasn't reading it anymore. It took me six months to cancel the subscription because I didn't want to be the guy who didn't read Harvard Business Review anymore, but I wasn't reading it. And it was piling up on my desk, making me feel guilty. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I think and I, was like, I, just, I just don't do that anymore. And it's, it was a weird little like, I had some self-talk about it. It's like, it was taunting me from the corner of my desk. You had to use neuro-linguistic programming to get out of your subscription. I, literally, yes. I have to coach you. Yeah, yeah. Fireside chat with my with myself. Me, me, and, me and myself and I sat around and went, really? It's just like, come on, you're an adult. You can get your... Come on, seriously. Do you want to be the guy who doesn't read Harvard Business Review? It makes you sound smart. <laughs> oh, so funny, the journey of, uh, of what we actually go through, if you want to be honest about it. To wrap up here, Tyler, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wished I had, or maybe just something that you'd like to end on? 
blatant promotion. If you uh, if you if you're curious about what's going on in Calgary and the people that are making the difference, go check out Collisions YYC. <laughs> now I feel just like a marker getting my plug in. I'm stalling as my brain's kind of processing. Uh, you asked some really really good questions, Jared. I appreciate it. You hardly gave me a breather, and you hit me you hit me with the next one. So I, all I can say is I really hope it added value. That's like that's my number one like criteria. Like okay, did I add value? Is someone going to get something out of this? I certainly hope so. And um, you didn't ask me how people can get a hold of me because I'm very open. So Tyler at clear T Y L E R at clearmotive.ca or check me out on Instagram or LinkedIn. Like hit me up anytime. Tyler Chisholm YYC or just Tyler Chisholm. So please, like I'm open. I love. <laughs> if you hadn't gathered this, I love conversations. So reach out if you like think you should. You'd be, think you should be on the podcast because you got something really cool to talk about. Like reach out, give me a call. Like let's 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 have a good old fashioned chat. I'm 100 open anytime. Well, I know that you have added a lot of value here. And I know that your podcast adds a lot of value for folks. So like I've already said, please take a listen to that as well. And Tyler, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today to sit down with us. I know you're somebody that has really just constantly, you're somebody that strives for more in your life. And um, I'm honored that you were interested in sitting down with me today. And for the listeners, if you want to learn more about Tyler, just like he said, you can find him personally on Instagram at Tyler Chisholm YYC on Twitter at Tyler Chisholm. You can also find Clear Motive on their website at clearmotive.ca. And you can find the Collisions YYC podcast anywhere you get your podcasts by just searching Collisions YYC. Tyler, thank you for joining us, my man. It was my pleasure, Jared. Thank, thank you so much. Kudos to what you're doing, man. Keep up the good work. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode number 18 with Iggy Domagalski, who's a fellow top 40 under 40 winner and CEO of Tundra Process Solutions. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back, and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at Strive Accelerator and find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.